Uh, we're doing something else, Pastor Norman. <laughs> <No. laughs> I'm, I'm very scared now to come up here. Yeah. Sorry about that. Uh, no, it's okay. You, you can that. stay now. <laughs> Good. Yeah. Good. Norm needs no introduction. <laughs> I won't take time away from him. Uh, lead pastor at Westside. Used to be a pastor here for about 10 years. Married two sons. It's a great joy to have you here. And may God use you. May we hear well. God bless. Thanks, Ray. Yeah. Well, good morning. Thank you. We'll see if you feel like doing that in about 40 minutes. We'll just see if you have that same emotion. Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3 is where we are uh, in this series that you have begun just a couple of weeks ago on the first 14 chapters, a series that you've entitled Mighty to Save. And Pastor Ray has been gracious to give me Exodus 3 to teach on, and so I'm very thankful for that because it's just a wondrous text. And uh, before I get into it, I just want to say thank you to you for allowing me to be with you this morning. I have a, a, a just a real soft spot in my heart for this ministry. When I see the dedication of, uh, of Jacob here, my two boys were dedicated on this stage by Pastor Carlin back in the day, and now they're 14 and almost 16. They love Jesus. They've been baptized. They walk with Jesus. And so, <clears throat> so when I see that, it brings me back. And so thank you for allowing me to be here. Thank you for allowing me to teach. And again, Pastor Ray, thank you for inviting me to uh, this time to spend with you. Let me pray and then we'll start walking through this wondrous chapter. Uh, Father, guide us now, I pray. Guide us now by way of your spirit through your text, through this word that you have given us, this word that was inspired by the Holy Spirit in its production, but it continues to be inspired, God-breathed in its proclamation. And so I pray that as we hear your word today, that we would respond to it in ways that glorify you and strengthen us. And I pray for all of these things in the great name of Jesus. Amen. Well, if you're newer to the Bible, and I assume that some of you are, one of the great things that you will discover in it is the realization that every Christian, every Christ follower has been given two distinct calls from God, without exception. None of us are exempt. The first call that every follower of Jesus receives is the call to, from unbelief to belief. You can use different language to explain it, from lost to found, old to new, sinner to saved, enemy to friend. That's the first call. Every Christian has received that call. The second call is the call to ministry. Believe it or not, every follower of Jesus has been called to be a minister of God. Now, when I say that, I know there's some skepticism from at least some of you. So the idea of thinking of yourself as a minister of God is one that perhaps you hesitate even considering. So let me prove it to you by reading from 2 Corinthians 5, a text that is on the screen. But Paul writes there, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So we see both calls in the text. The first call where we read that by way of Jesus, we have been reconciled to God. That's call number one. But we also see the second. We've been given a ministry. And the ministry is go tell others about what's happened in our lives and offer it to them the ministry of reconciliation. Tell them that they too can be right with God by way of Jesus. Now, how these calls get fleshed out, that's different. 
How it gets fleshed out in your life, how it gets fleshed out in mine is very different. For you, that first call may have happened very early in your life, maybe a three or four-year-old praying with your mom or dad, kneeling at your bed. For some of you, that's your story. But for others of you, you weren't three or four. You were 63 or 64 after spending a life doing all sorts of things. But then God got a hold of you later on in life. And so how it gets fleshed out, that first call in our lives is different. But so too is the second call. Your call to be a minister is different than my call. The scope of your ministry is different than the scope of mine. The things you participate in is different than the things that I participate in. And yet it's the same call. Tell people about Jesus. That's the call. And we have them both. We are all called. Now, I begin this way for Exodus chapter 3 records the call of God on Moses. A call to a very specific task. But what I love about this text, and Exodus 3 is a sweet text. But what I love about this text is that it, it addresses one of the major problems associated with God's calling. That being our tendency to make it all about us when it's much more about God himself. And so here's what I want to do today. I want to discover some things about God that we learn by way of his call on Moses. I'll give you three discoveries. You have a handout in your bulletins. It's the most simple handout you will ever have. So I'm going to give you three discoveries. You can follow along and doodle below the points because you have a lot of room there. So we'll get to Moses eventually, but let's begin with God with discovery number one. And the discovery is that God remembers. Discovery number one, God is a remembering God. And the reason why I say that actually comes out of some verses that end chapter 2, but pave the way for what takes place in chapter 3 and thereafter. So let me me read verses 23 to 25 in chapter 2 under this point of God remembering. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning and God remembered. There's our word. He remembered his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. So God remembered. We discovered this in the call of Moses. God remembered. But what does God remember specifically? Well, in verse 24, we discover that God remembered his covenant with the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But There's more to what he remembered here than what we read in verse 24. For specifically what he remembers is something that he promised Abram before he was even Abraham, all the way back, hundreds and hundreds of years before in his discussion recorded for us in Genesis 15. Let me take you there. Again, it's on the screen. But all the way back in Genesis 15, we remember this. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and they will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. Just stop there for a second. Note that word serve. It's really important. We'll come back to it later in our time together. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. So what's going on? Well, what God promised then with Abram in Genesis 15 is taking place now. That's the series you're in. 400 years is done. 
their enslavement to this nation of Egypt, their servants to them, slaves to them. But God has heard their cry and he's remembered his promise. Now, when I say God remembered his promise, his covenant promise, I don't want you to hear that as in some way God forgot it. Like he went through hundreds of years and all of a sudden one day, oh yeah, I remember. I said something back in the day. That's not what the word means. It's not what it's speaking of when we connect it to God remembering. What it means is that he was about to act and in a very specific way. He remembered, he's acting now because he promised it. So one simple takeaway at this point in the message, and I think it's a good takeaway, if you're to just walk out now and leave, if you got this one takeaway, I think it would be helpful to you, and that is that God remembers, reminds us that what God says will come to pass. That's the takeaway. I think it's a good takeaway. But let me ask the question, why is it important? Why is it important that God remembers? I mean, we forget, right? We forget. I forgot when I was supposed to come up on the stage. We forget. We forget all the time. So why can't God catch the same break? I mean, why can't God promise something and not bring it to pass? Why not? Why, why can't God every once in a while just tell a little white lie? Why can't God do that? Why can't God be a God like that? Why not? Well, when I ask questions like that, I can almost feel your discomfort, right? Like, who is this guy speaking? Why is he here? I can almost feel your discomfort, and I can almost hear you come up with answers in your own head to the questions that I just asked. Well, because uh, he's God. He's God, and God cannot lie. I think it says it somewhere in the Bible. He cannot lie, and you'd be in fact right. It does in places like Deuteronomy 23 verse 19, for example, but it's not the only place. So God is God, and he cannot lie, for it would go against his very nature that God isn't simply a God who speaks truth. He's not just simply a God who speaks truth. He is truth, capital T. And he's not simply a God that utters words. He is the word, capital W. And therefore, based on things like that, if God promises something, it will come to pass. In fact, it must come to pass. And so if you're wrestling with that or thinking those things and want to respond in that way to my other questions that I ask, I agree with you. I agree with you about the things of God. But I have another question. Why then do we live as if we don't believe it? Why are we so quick to defend God as a keeper of promises and yet live like he is not? See, so often we can have a great theology, but it not express itself in our lives. Is that not true? Believing something and not acting on it, however, is a form of disbelief, is it not? And so we should be greatly encouraged in the reality that God remembers and always, but we should be challenged too. To remember and walk in them, 
To remember and walk in them is so vital for us because we have a strong bent to forgetting. One of the great disciplines that doesn't get talked about enough in the church today is the discipline to remember. To just get up in the morning and remember. Remember the promises, remember the things that God has done, the things that will take place because he said they would, to remember. We need to remember. We have a great tendency to forgetting. In addition to that, we have an enemy that loves to bombard us with lies. Bombard us with lies leading to doubt and disbelief perhaps thereafter. Our tendency towards forgetting is why, for example, Jesus calls us to remember with a meal of bread and wine. Do this in remembrance of me. And can I challenge you not to simply think about the communion meal as a memorial, but as a recalibration of the heart and soul whenever you do it? So in the call of Moses, discovery number one, God remembers. But we're not done, for in his call we also see that God reveals. God reveals four different things, four aspects of himself in verses one to nine. Let me give them to you rather quickly, not because they're unimportant, but for time's sake, because we have much to do this morning. Four things that God reveals of himself, the first as being over creation. He's over creation. He's distinct from creation. Take a look at verses 1 and 2. This is why I say that. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Oreb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. There's much that we could talk about from these two verses and about this event of the bush not being consumed by fire. But at the very least, what I want us to consider coming out of this event and the many events that you're going to look at in the chapters ahead is that events like this should move us to consider, could it be possible that there is something that stands over nature? Is there a possibility that there is a creator that stands apart from creation? He supersedes it. It submits to him. It bows down in deference to him. I think that's one revelation, but there's more. God also reveals himself as being holy. Verses three to five. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take off your sandals, off your feet, for the place on which you were standing was holy ground. Very famous three verses, even if you have very little experience, if any, in the book of Exodus, you've probably heard about the burning bush and holy ground. Take off your sandals, Moses, where you're standing is holy ground. But why was it holy? Like special dirt? Like Dijon dirt, like really nice dirt. Like, why is it holy? You ever thought about it? There's some very common answers to the question of why it was holy. Some of the more common answers is number one, because God declared it holy. And if God declares something holy, then doggone it, it's holy. That's one answer. It's a good answer. A second answer is because God's presence was there. And where God is, it's holy. 
So God's presence is there and therefore it's holy. Then other individuals will answer with, well, because it was set apart for God's use. So God is using this place. He's present there. So Moses, take your sandals off. This is holy ground. Common answer. All of them good answers. I like them all. But I like them all most of all because in them we begin to grasp our holiness too. Why are we holy if you're a follower of Jesus? You're holy because God declared you holy. He declares you holy. In fact, God not only declares you holy, you are holy in reality by way of the work of Jesus. His holiness, his righteousness, imputed, given, planted onto you. So you've been declared holy. You're also holy because God's presence, his very presence by way of the spirit is in you. So you're holy because God's in you. But you're also holy because you've been set apart for his work. We aren't just saved full stop. We're saved and now we're called to go out and tell people about salvation. We've been set apart. That's call number two that we talked about earlier. So we're holy and we get a description of why here. But there is something different about the holiness of God. And the divine holiness of God caused, as we see in verse 6, Moses to turn his head away at the end of verse 6, which is always the pattern of people when catching even a glimpse of God's holiness. For example, and there are many examples of this in the scriptures, but in Isaiah chapter 6, it records there probably the most well-known example where Isaiah glimpsed God on the throne. He hears the seraphim cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And the response, the reaction of Isaiah, and you can read this on the screen as well, is woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. But this is just one example. If you fast forward to the ministry of Jesus about 1,500 or so years later, even when Jesus displays just some of his power by drawing fish into nets, Peter declares, depart from me, Jesus, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. You and I standing in the presence of God in and of ourselves is like a mosquito trying to fly into Niagara Falls. His glory only pushing us back into our own finiteness and uncleanliness. So what is our hope? Our hope is one who on our behalf allows us to walk boldly now into the presence of God. Boldly. Jesus himself. So God reveals himself in those two ways, but there's a couple of more. God reveals himself as being the God of the patriarchs. Take a look at the first part of verse 6, if you don't mind. And he said, God said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham and God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Just stop there. I'm not going to spend much time here. All I really want you to note coming out of this revelation and what God says is important. And we should pause and go, why are you saying this? What God is saying to Moses and what he's saying to us is I'm a God of continuance. I'm a God who has promised here and I'm bringing it to pass here. I'm the God of them, your patriarchs. I'm the God of them. And so what he is also telling Moses and us is you're part of a bigger story. You're, you're, you're part of a bigger story that I'm calling you to play a part in now. So Moses, remember this. 
This is a part of a bigger story, my story. It's like a wonderful mosaic where your story plays a part of it, a wondrous part of it, but only a part of it because the story is about me fully. And so I am the God of continuance. I'm the God of the patriarchs. And lastly, in verses one to nine, God reveals himself as being intimate. Take a look at verses seven to nine. They are sweet, sweet verses. Tender. I don't know what your picture of God is. That if you wrestle with the character of God and wonder about God and does God care and does God, does God recognize Just hear from God himself. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me and I've also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. As I said, so tender and so full of compassion and they speak directly into the primal cries that are often ours. Do they not? God, do you care? God, do you care? God, you see? God, are you going to act? Well, God answers here. I do see your afflictions. I do see what's going on in your family, in your relationships. I do see what's going on in your body, in your community, in your country, in your world. I do see. And I do care and I do hear, but not only do I see, hear, and know these things, but I have come down to you and I will bring you back up again, is what he says in verse 8. Does that remind you of anything? I do see and I've come down to bring you back up again. It should. Because it's here in the book of Exodus that we see very clearly the gospel story. I mean, again, fast forward 1,500 years and Jesus has a conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. And he says, Nicodemus, for God so loved the world that he sent. And who did he send? He sent God himself in Jesus. I see and I've come down and I've come down to take you back up again. This is the gospel. It's the gospel in Exodus. This story pointing ahead to the great fulfillment work of Jesus who came for us. So in the call of Moses, we discover that God remembers, number one, God reveals, number two, and finally, God recruits. Staying within our theme. God recruits, but he does it in that order. Please note that. He remembers first, he reveals second, and he recruits third. The recruiting of God takes place in verse 10, where he says, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. There's the recruiting. I'm calling you, I'm sending you. But on a first read, verse 10 may bug you, bugs me. It, It may bug you because after all of God's declarations of intimate involvement, verses seven to nine, 
He now says, come, I will send you. After saying, I have come down to bring them up, he now says, hey, Moses, you go. What the heck? Right? What is it, God? Have you come down to do something to bring them up? Or are you calling me to do it? Which one is it? Make a choice. How can you say both? I mean, there's something going on here that we have to see. How can God do this? What does God want us to see in this? Well, I think he wants us to see a couple of things that are very important to us if we're going to understand our call. One of the things that he wants us to see is that it's his work ultimately. And we his instruments in it. He wants us to see that. It's funny, in the Bible, we are compared to a lot of different things, and none of them all that complimentary. We're compared to things like jars of clay, right? I mean, great band in the 90s, but not, you know, not, not a great compliment, a jar of clay. Cracked pots. Try that on for size. Cracked pots. Smoldering wicks. Just kind of a little bit of smoke. Bruised reeds. So we're compared to dust from the ground. There you go. That's what we're compared to over again and over again. And yet through us, God's work is still accomplished. How is that possible? Because it's his work. It's his work and his work alone And he calls us to participate in it. But again, one more time, it's his work. What handcuffs us along the way? We focus too much on the instrument and not the one playing it. And that's why God revealing himself must take place before the recruitment comes. I think God also wants us to see that his presence is shown in and through his people. That's why we are called most often in the church, what? The body of Christ. That's why Jesus says, it's good, I'm going. I'm sending a helper, a strengthener, and a power that will be in you and you will make me know, you will be my witnesses. And so God reveals himself through his people. And thirdly, we are to see that his presence is in the call itself. In other words, Moses isn't going alone. This is affirmed in verse 12 with the promise of God to be with Moses. But yet again, I remind you of something that is declared 1,500 years after this event in what is called the Great Commission, where Jesus states to his disciples, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So when God calls us to go, he doesn't tell us to go alone. He is with us always. So what do we have so far? Well, in the call of God on Moses, we discover that God remembers, God reveals, and God recruits, which leads finally to the response of Moses. I said that we would get to Moses eventually, and we now arrive at his response. His response begins in chapter 3, but it continues In chapter 4, you'll get there next week. But Moses responds here with two questions. The first is posed in verse 11. Verse 11, we read, But Moses said to God, Who am I? 
Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? We get the question, right? The question, who am I? Who am I to do something like this? The first thing that I would like to say about this question of Moses as posed in verse verse 11 is, I have no problem with it. I mean, it's certainly much better than, hey God, it's about time, right, that you called me? I mean, who better? I mean, what gives? Right, that's that's never a good response. So I like this better. And I mean, think about, in addition to that, who Moses was at this point. He's an 80-year-old shepherd on the run. That's him. Living in the wilderness. He's a murderer who has a price tag on his head for killing an Egyptian. Add on top of that, he wasn't really liked by his Hebrew sisters and brothers. Do you remember last week in verse 14? Who made you prince and judge over us? Willingdon Moses was an ordinary guy with a, with a rap sheet who tended sheep for a living and wasn't necessarily liked. And so I get the question. I like the question. It's not a surprising question when you consider once again what he was being called to. Not surprising. But what is surprising is the response of God in verse 12. Take a look at verse 12. He said but I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people of Egypt, out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Now I said this is a surprising answer, a reply to the question of Moses. Why is it so surprising? Well, it's so surprising because there's no flattery in it. Did you pick that up? It's surprising because it's so unlike how we respond to pushback like Moses gave today. Like, how would you respond? Oh, Moses, you're not so bad. They probably forgot about the murder. It's okay, man. And your, your time, your time spent with sheep is going to serve you well because you're going to have to tend to a million upon a million people in the wilderness. So Moses, turn the frown upside down. You're great. You got a lot to bring to the game. Get in there. That's not the response of God. Doesn't flatter Moses, doesn't butter him up. Instead of flattery, God responds with two promises. The first is a promise of his presence. I will be with you. I've already touched upon this. But the second is a promise of success. Notice the second part of verse 12. When, not if, When you come out, you will serve me on this mountain. Do you remember I said we would come back to this word serve? I want to laser in on it. This is really important, this word serve. So let's laser in on this success promise. You're going to come out. When you come out, you are going to serve serve me on this mountain. The reason why I want to laser in on this word serve as connected to this promise is because the way the word serve is used here speaks of worship. If you use the NIV, some of you use the NIV translation of the Bible, it actually translates the word that way. And the reason it does so is for the Hebrew word for worship is the same word used for the phrase to be a slave. Stephen affirms this. Stephen, the first martyr in the early church in Acts chapter 7, is sharing the story of God and Israel before he gets stoned. And he quotes from Exodus 3. 
He quotes this text. And he writes or states there, it's recorded for us there, that after that they shall come out and they shall worship me in this place. We see similar uses in places like Romans 12 where Paul writes, I appeal to you therefore brothers and sisters by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship or service. Now, the reason why I want to laser in on this discussion of serve is because I want us to appreciate what God is telling Moses. What God is telling Moses is that the slavery of Israel to Egypt would be replaced with slavery to God. A slavery at a moment, that moment in time, to a tyrannical, tyrannical ruler in Egypt who brought bondage and death, transferred to a slavery to a loving God who brings freedom and life. So what is this? This is a picture of salvation. And it's why I want to stop and bedrock here for a little while. This is a picture of salvation. You see, we have a choice. And only two choices really in that one choice. Who we serve. Who will be a slave to. We can be a slave, a servant in bondage to a horrific leader. One who wants to bring death and destruction. Or we can be in bondage to a loving father. Who brings life and freedom and abundance. This idea of being in bondage to a loving father is the reason why Paul so often calls himself, in the beginning of his letters, a bond servant of Jesus. That's what's taking place here. It's why we, why we need to see this, for this is to be the same mindset we have too. We're in service to a loving father. Now, before moving on to the second question of Moses in verse 13, I would be amiss if I didn't ask, coming out of this portion of Exodus 3, are any of you resisting God's call on your life right now because of your past? First call or second call? Maybe the first call, you're sensing God calling you, but you're going, there's no way. Do you recognize my past, God? My past is too far gone for you to be able to handle it, forgive it. Or perhaps the second call is something you're wrestling with and you're thinking, I'm too ordinary. This call is far too big. It's too much for me. Well, then can I remind you of God's response to either of one of the resistance? He's not going to flatter you. Instead, he says, I know who you are. I know more about you than you know about you. I know who you are, and I know the task at hand, but I will be with you, and I will give you success. But here's the thing about Moses. He isn't convinced. It's not good enough yet. And so, verse 13 records the second question Let's read it together. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? So the first question is, who am I? The second question is, who are you? A couple of things to note about the question. 
The first is that in this culture, it's asked because names had a lot more to do than simply addressing someone. For in names, you discovered something about the one being addressed. In other words, names encapsulated your nature, your character, what you're about. And so when we read the question, what is his name? Read it as, what is he like? The one that sent you, Moses, what's he like? And tied into that, can he be trusted? So if they, God, if they ask me, who shall I say sent them, sent me, what shall I tell them? Additionally, the question Moses poses on behalf of the people is probably the same question he had. You're sending me, you promised to go with me, but can I trust you? Who are you? Isn't it the same question that we often ask? Can I trust you? Well, God answers. Look at verses 14 and 15. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Huh? What does this mean? Like if you're asking what, that's an appropriate question. It's a confusing couple of verses. It seems that there's a lot of bad grammar in it, right? Tell them I am has sent you. Nope. All the English teachers at Willing and right now are going nuts. What do you mean I am has, what is God saying here? Well, let me see if I can help. In response to Moses' question, God reveals himself first in verse 14 with the phrase, I am. Comes up three times. That phrase in the Hebrew is the word heya, a word that means to be. But in verse 15, just notice it. Please keep your eyes looking at verses 14 and 15. God further clarifies his name by saying, tell the people the Lord, the God of your fathers, has sent you. Now, the word translated there, Lord, you see it there? Stay with me. Is a play on the word Heya and is the name of God, Yahweh, which is made up of four Hebrew letters, yod heh vah We say Yahweh. We're not really sure how they stated it, but that's the name of the Lord there. This is the most frequently used name of God in the Old Testament. Comes up 6,800 plus times. And it's translated in your Bible, and please note it, with the name Lord, but do you notice how it's written there? Four capital, small capital letters? That's Yahweh, yod heh vah But here's the important question. What does it mean? And why does God reveal it now? Well, it's a name that speaks of God's self-existence. It's a name, therefore, that means that God is not dependent upon any outside agency. It's a name that tells us that God isn't to be recognized first by what he does, but who he is. And therefore, it's a name that speaks of God's immutability, meaning his unchangingness, that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And forever with all things sustained by him. But, and here's a really important but, it's also a name that speaks of God's covenant-keeping relationship with his people. That because he is unchanging, And doesn't rest on outside agencies. 
His covenant promises are secure. And therefore, it's a name that calls us to rest in him and assures us that we have no need to look elsewhere. He has and he never will fail. So what is the answer of God to Moses? Moses, tell them that. That's who I am. And Moses, I'm telling you that too. That's who is calling you, sending you, and going with you. And willing then, please hear me. That's who calls you, sends you, and goes with you too. Do you believe that? Let's finish off by reading the last seven verses of our text. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. And now please let us go on a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, they will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. Lot there. But what do I want to see you most, see, have you see most of all is the overarching sovereignty of God displayed here. A display that points back to the name of God that he just gave Moses. I mean, did you pick up the sovereignty of God, the promises? I promise to bring you up, verse 17. The elders will listen to you, verse 18. Pharaoh won't listen to you, verses 19 and 20. And then finally in verses 21 and 22, I will give you favor in the sight of the Egyptians. So much so, they won't be able to stop themselves from giving you what is theirs. They will literally self-plunder. So willing, and as I close, I ask, any of you being called today? Maybe for the first time, by God who sees, by God who hears, by a God who knows, And he cares and has come down to you by way of Jesus. Do you hear his call? He's calling. There's a reason why you're here today. Your impetus to get up and drive to willing today is an evidence of his calling. He's drawing you. So do you hear him? A God who wants to set you free from your bondage and offers life and freedom in exchange. Again, are you hearing his call? Don't ignore his call. As this series title affirms, he is mighty to save. But perhaps you've heard that first call and you've responded to it, but God has a call of ministry on you. Maybe it's a ministry of simply going to your neighbor. Or maybe it's something far grander or a longer journey than that. But he's calling you. And you're asking, who am I to do something like that? It's a great question. It's an appropriate question. 
My encouragement to you, don't focus on the one being called as much as the one who is calling. The one who remembers and reveals and recruits and promises to be with you always. Let me pray. And so, Father, your word tells us that we are not to be mere hearers of it, but doers of it. That knowledge puffs up, but true wisdom is expressed in love. And so I pray as we now leave this place, we would leave recognizing if we are a follower of Jesus, that you have given us a ministry. And you have placed us in this time and season to make you known. So empower us. We need your help and strength. Because by ourselves, we can't do it. So help us in that. And for those that are wrestling, wondering, are you real? Are you true? I pray that they would just continue on asking those questions, making steps forward in this journey towards faith and belief and salvation, that they would heed that first call so as to be able to participate in the second. And I pray for these things all in the great name of Jesus. Amen. Have a great week, Willingdon.